Okay, so Easter has passed and we're about 32 days from the Feast of the Ascension, marking the day of Jesus's return to heaven. I have one friend that likes to quip uh, that he truly has the human experience and like all of, some of us, he began that time working from home. Uh, <laughs> that's, is, that's not blasphemous, is it? No, because he is home, right? Okay, very good. So <laughs> what do you imagine? Go ahead, go ahead. Thank you. <laughs> but I digress. What do you imagine Jesus is doing right now? I mean, do you find yourself sort of functionally viewing him as being retired? Like he had his earthly work to do and now he's up in heaven without much going on. Save maybe training for his return, but he just doesn't have a whole lot that he's responsible for right now. You know, we tend to give a lot of focus to Christ's past work, which is right. And we should never stop talking about and celebrating what he did in, his, in the past in his life, death, and resurrection. What is that glorious past work? Well, he justifies us. That's his past work. He atones for our sin. The whole point of his life, death, burial, and resurrection is that he came to us as Emmanuel, which means God with us. He lived the life that we could never live, a sinless life. He died the death that we deserved on the cross, and he conquered the enemies that we could not conquer, sin and death. I'm not gonna go too deeply into this idea of justification uh, this morning because we talk about it all the time here. It's, it's deeply embedded in our liturgy, especially the Eucharist. But I don't want to assume, I don't want to assume that everyone understands this or that there's not someone here who might be hearing it for the first time. Jesus justifies us. To be justified is to be declared righteous or to be declared innocent in the sight of God. We are guilty, as we say in the confession every week, of sinning against God's divine majesty, his, his, his perfect holiness, provoking most justly his righteous anger against us. Now, there's something in that phrase that's critically important for us to understand and something that can make us kind of uncomfortable, righteous anger. This is not an emotional outburst. It's not arbitrary and capricious. It's, it's not uncontrolled or blown out of proportion. There's something, there's, there's nothing uncontrolled or disproportionate about God. His anger against us, against our sin, his wrath is just and it is perfect. But we are fully exonerated. We are completely absolved based entirely upon what Jesus has done for us in the past. We tend to, be, to rush to judgment. God's nature is to rush to mercy. Apart from your grace, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the God whose character is what? Always to have mercy. 
We're guilty, but we're completely acquitted. And, and not only that, our record is entirely expunged because of the past work of Jesus. He justifies us. He makes it as if we had never sinned. And that's how I learned as a kid to remember what justified means, just as if I'd never sinned. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By what? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So we have a record of debt against us, and a ledger inconceivably long. Every sin we've committed in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. And what Colossians tells us is that Jesus, by what he has done, has canceled our record of debt, which he did by carrying it to the cross with him. Our entire debt nailed there with him, paid, canceled. And because it frames what comes next, we, we must start there. Justification. Through his past work, Jesus justifies us. But he's also doing something in the present. And the Bible tells us precisely what that is. Namely, he contends for us. He's ever interceding and advocating for us. Typically, when one intercedes, there are two parties and then a third party who kind of stands between to mediate the needs of one or the other, or if necessary, to reconcile the two parties. In church world, if, if you were to make the statement that you were interceding on my behalf, what does that mean? It means you're praying for me. You're taking my needs and you're bringing them before God. You're the third party. You're interceding on my behalf. And the scriptures tells us, tell us that Jesus intercedes for us. He brings our needs before God the Father. Romans 8, 33 and 34 says this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? And why don't you see how the way that, that, that justification and intercession are wed here in this passage. God, it is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Jesus Christ, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. This tells us that the current work of Jesus, his current ministry, is that he's at the right hand of God the Father at this moment. And he's interceding for us. He's praying for us. He's praying over us. He's bringing our repentance and our needs, everyone, to the Father. Not as if the Father is cold towards us, but Jesus is just ever cheering us on and reminding the Father what he's done for us and who we are in Christ. There's an illustration in the book where the author likens this to an older brother cheering on his younger brother who's in a foot race. 
and the younger brother, even though he's way out ahead and clearly going to win, or, or I would add, hopelessly behind, the older brother never stops cheering for him. He just keeps cheering at the top of his lungs, cheering him on until he crosses the finish line. He just, he never stops. And in the same way, it's the same way with Jesus as our older brother. He continues always till we cross the finish line. Sometimes ahead, sometimes behind. Cheering us on before the Father. This is the constant moment by moment ministry of Jesus right now on our behalf praying for you. He's in the Father's ear right now praying for you. Praying for me. Always. There's never a moment when he's not interceding for us. It's a quotation in the book for, from from chapter 8, the, the work of atonement, our justification, accomplished our salvation. Intercession is the moment-by-moment -moment application of that atoning work. In the past, Jesus did what he now talks about. In the present, Jesus talks about what he then did. Hebrews 7.25 says this, and by the way, this is in your bulletin, but in my haste on Friday morning, I cut and pasted from the New International Version which I think is a weaker translation of this passage. Um, and we use the English Standard Version here, or as we like to call it, the Eastern Shore Version, the ESV. <laughs> Hebrews 7.25 says this. He, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And don't you love that this verse tells us it is able to save to the uttermost? To the uttermost. That's one Greek word that means to the farthest reaches you can imagine. Those who draw near to God through him. This is what Christ's intercessory work does. He doesn't save us mostly. He's not somehow completing his work of salvation as if he did 90 or 95% of it back then and he's completing it finishing it up now. No, he's a complete savior. Intercession doesn't complete his work of justification. It constantly applies the work of justification. Let me illustrate how. Last fall, sitting at the boys' high school state soccer championship, which the good guys lost, by the way, I overheard a father behind me describing with not a small amount of joy the adventure of purchasing his soon-to-be 16-year-old daughter's birthday present. Four primo tickets to see the young female superstar, whose name rhymes with sail or drift, uh, which I imagine is a question boaters often ask themselves when they have no place to be. And whose concert ticket sales broke the internet a bunch of times and made a lot of people really really grouchy, and a few class action attorneys potentially very wealthy. 
This father was, in the end, able to purchase them online, but only after an entire day sitting at his computer, as he described it, hitting refresh every five seconds. Several thousand dollars in ticket prices and another several hundred dollars in fees. I thought about this a lot this week as I prepared this sermon about the patience, tenacity, and eventual joy of this man sitting at his computer all day just hitting refresh over and over again on behalf of his daughter because it describes really well, I think, what Jesus is doing in his intercession for us. In essence, constantly, tenaciously, joyfully hitting refresh on our justification in the court of heaven. Jesus, as intercessor, is a way of communicating to us that he's not an impersonal savior. He hasn't mechanically or robotically justified us. It's not a kind of, a kind of formula he applies generally in a detached or clinical way. No, he's personally invested in each and every one of his people. He is right now in the court of heaven before the angels and all the heavenly hosts, before his father, his father and ours, applying moment by moment his justifying work on our behalf. In other words, he doesn't just save sinners generally. He saves particular sinners, individual sinners, you and me, who are in him. We are to the uttermost sinners. One of the descriptions that he uses in his book is that if sin were the color blue, everything we touch to a greater or lesser degree would have some hint of blue in it. We are to the uttermost sinners. We're not partial sinners. He is a perfectly matched savior a to-the-uttermost Savior. So let me ask you the same question I've been asking myself. What's that one pocket in your life? That one region, that corner, where you're tempted to think that's where the heart of Christ can't quite reach. You receive his healing, giving, restoring heart for most of your life. But what's that area of your life where it can easily feel like his heart cannot reach there? I want you to know, scripture says he reaches to the uttermost. With his heart as he intercedes for you, there is no corner of your life, no part of your interior world that his healing, interceding heart doesn't reach. But there's more. 1 John 1 or 2 1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. My little children, he starts. Uh, John was an old man by now, a grandpa. He wasn't a grandpa because I, I don't think he. Was John? John? Was John married? Yes, he lived. Yeah, yeah, he lived a long time, but also Jesus. Never mind. Anyway, uh, he was an old man at least of grandfatherly age by then. This is called real-time preparation. But what he means by my little children is those who are daughters and sons of God, 
those who are in Christ. And he teaches straightforwardly and unapologetically that we're not to sin. That as God's daughters and sons, we're to walk uprightly. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're summoned up into. That's how flourishing takes place as we do not sin. But if anyone does sin, and here's where the Christian gospel interlocks with our lives in a way that no other world religion does. Every religion teaches people to walk in a certain way, but here's the gospel. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an advocate with the Father. Advocate is a word that overlaps significantly with intercessor, but it does have a distinct nuance. It's a, it's a word that's used five times in the New Testament. The four other outside of 1 John are in the Gospel of John. Chapters 14 through 16 and refer to the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in John's Gospel is our comforter, our helper, our counselor, our, our advocate. And therein is the incredible liberating point of 1 John 2.1. Because think about what it doesn't say. It doesn't say you, when you get your life together, you'll have an advocate who's on your side, an ally, a comforter, someone who puts his arm around you and helps you. It's not you'll have that once you're flying straight and doing right. Rather, if anyone sins, we have an advocate. Not when we're doing great, we have an advocate. The point is precisely when we're not. When we sin, we have an advocate before the Father. We are not and can never be righteous in ourselves, but we do have an advocate who is Jesus Christ the righteous. Not only did Jesus Christ die in your place as a substitute back then, which is glorious enough, you have someone who's but also right now, he is with you in solidarity, not only as a substitute, but in solidarity. You never need to advocate for yourself. You have someone who's doing that for you, someone who defends you and supports you and fights for you, not because you're not guilty, but because he's already done everything that's required to pay for your sin, to pay the price you could not pay. So when the accusations come, he is the one who defends us and reminds us that we are in Christ. So he justifies us, then he contends for us. He intercedes for us and he advocates for us. Thanks be to God. So how should we live out this truth? I, I see at least three ways. I'm sure there are more. The first one is this. We can be confident that Jesus is always praying for and defending us, always. We never have to look over our shoulder and wonder, is he with me? Is he for me? No, he always lives to intercede. He's always our advocate. Even when we screw it up, even when we can't forgive ourselves, he is ever interceding and advocating for you. He's always in the Father's ear about me, about you. He's always talking to the Father about how he loves you, 
and your identity in him. He's not disappointed in you. He's not standing there staring at his sandals. He is cheering you on, always praying for and defending you. And if we can root that truth in our heart, I believe it will reshape the way we walk out our days. And here's the second thing. You can stop, just stop playing the defense and or prosecuting attorney. Here's what I mean. We tend to be, or more to the point, believe we are our own best attorney. I th there's only one person in here, I think, that who would qualify to be their own best attorney. <laughs> We justify ourselves. We make excuses or insist on our innocence. It's not really my fault. It's not really that bad or it's not really that big a deal. I mean, we minimize, we shrug off, we blame shift, just as Adam and Eve did. Or maybe this is you. You almost can't admit when you're wrong, even when you know in your heart of hearts that you are. Or when a sin's been brought to light, you reflexively defend yourself. The thing is, Jesus is the only one who can justify. He's the only one who can forgive. He is, as you hear every week in the conclusion of the prayers of the people, he is our only mediator and advocate. Abraham Lincoln famously said, a man who represents himself has a fool for a client. So stop being foolish. Stop defending yourself. Be honest. Simply come in humility and give your sin to him in confession. Not apology, confession. They're very different things, and I'm not going to go into them today. All of this knowing that he's your only defense. You don't have to defend yourself anymore, which is good because you can't. But this also means we can stop playing the role of prosecuting attorney with ourselves. Not I'm innocent, but I am so guilty long after confession, restitution, or restoration with another, if that's called for, and, and long after amendment of life, ongoing guilt, toxic shame, self-loathing. Maybe for something you did years or decades ago. You say or think, God, you see it all. You know it all. You hate sin, so you must dis be disgusted with me. There's no way in the world you can be truly glad to be with me. You're your own prosecuting attorney. But the more you can understand and inculcate this truth that Jesus justifies completely and he's constantly contending for you, you can drop, just drop the prosecuting attorney gig. You can stop condemning yourself because Jesus has already borne your condemnation. 
indescribably good news for those in Christ comes from Romans 8.1. I mentioned it last week, but it bears repeating. There is therefore now no condemnation, not some, not a little, not barely any, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The prosecution occurred on the cross and he's canceled your debt of sin, carrying your ledger to the cross with him. You can just stop either defending or accusing. And finally, which is everyone's favorite part of the sermon, finally, here's a third way to live out this truth. We can finally stop playing judge and jury with others and instead look to the only righteous judge. We can too easily write people off when they've hurt or offended us, which by the way, people can do quite unintentionally. Or when they've sinned against us in some way, our judgment on them can be immediate and irrevocable. Even though we've sinned against others too, or at least I have. We can find it so easy and self-righteously delicious to act as judge and jury rather than reckoning with the inconvenient truth that the only righteous judge has already done everything necessary to justify and forgive the other too. That if they are in Christ, that righteous judge is at that moment pleading on their behalf. And he's interceding at the right hand of the Father for that person that we've been judge and jury for. And he's advocating, he's defending the one that we're seeking to prosecute. That kind of makes my brain hurt. When I act as judge and jury, I put myself at odds with the one who is contending for that person. And I do not want to be at odds with the righteous judge but he will contend for me if I am, <laughs> which also makes my brain hurt. I'm not trying to be glib. Listen, no sin committed by us or against us will be overlooked or excused by Christ. Every sin will be punished. A, mor a morally serious God could do nothing else. That punishment comes on the cross, thanks be to God, for anyone who sincerely repents and with true faith turns to him, and in judgment for everyone who refuses. And also, this is a serious subject, and so I feel like I ought to tell you three things I've learned about being sinned against and forgiveness. Personal lessons, I have the scars to prove, and you probably do too. And I'm glad to further discuss these with you personally. First one is this. Forgiveness is not quid pro quo. It doesn't need to be sought to be given. It's good if it's asked for, but it's not requisite. Second one is this. Harboring and nursing unforgiveness is like taking poison and hoping the other person dies. 
never works. Third one is this, forgiveness is not equal to reconciliation. Most times reconciliation can happen, but there are some harmful or abusive relationships we need to both forgive and extricate ourselves from. Forgiveness is not equal to reconciliation. But here's the bigger truth from our time today. The more we can metabolize the truth that Jesus is the one who justifies and intercedes and advocates for you and for me and for every daughter and son of God, the more we can stop writing people off, the quicker we can forgive. We can stop playing judge and jury and we can look to and point others to the righteous judge. In 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul writes, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to those, all those who have loved here his appearing. There's only one righteous judge, and it's not me, and it's not you. It's the Lord. Just what an astounding thing. How just dumbfounding is the gentle and lowly heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers like me and you. He justifies. He intercedes. And every time we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. As we walk through life and we're criticized, we're judged, we feel our own conscience rising up to condemn us, we're very deeply, naturally hardwired to justify and self-advocate. But I want you to know, on the authority of Scripture, Jesus Christ the righteous is your only mediator and advocate. collapse into his advocacy for you. Don't let your sin and guilt lead you to believe that you're alone in this life. Rather, let your sin and guilt remind you that you're not. Thanks be to God. Amen.